Uh, so another warning, this is a uh, very uh, confronting uh, and potentially R-rated passage in case you didn't um, pick it up uh, during the reading. Uh, and uh, I do want to uh, kick off, though, with a, uh, a story, Soren Kierkegaard's uh, story. He was a Danish philosopher, and it's the story of the complacent duck. One spring, a duck was flying north with a flock uh, in the Danish countryside. That particular duck spotted a barnyard where tame ducks lived. Uh, the duck dropped down, and he discovered these ducks had wonderful corn to eat. So he stayed for an hour. Then for a day, a week went by, and then a month. And because the corn and the safe barnyard were so fine, our duck ended up staying the entire summer at the farm. Then one crisp autumn day, some wild ducks flew overhead, quacking as they winged their way south. He looked up and heard them, and he was stirred with a strange sense of joy and delight. And then with all his might, he began flapping his wings and rose into the air, planning to join his comrades for their trip south. But all that corn had made the duck both soft and heavy. And he couldn't manage to fly any higher than the barn roof. So he dropped back to that barnyard and he said to himself, Oh well, my life here is safe and the food is good. After that, in the next spring and autumn, the duck would hear wild ducks honking as they passed overhead and for a minute his eyes would look and gleam. He'd start flapping his wings almost without realising it. But then a day came when those others would pass overhead uttering their cry and the now tame duck would not pay the slightest attention Little did the duck know that he was on a duck farm and before he knew it, he was duck dinner. The story that we're looking at this morning forces us to ask ourselves a question. uh, Whether we are more like a migratory bird uh, passing our way through this world on our way to a better country or are we more like a sitting duck settled And satisfied with the way things are, but ultimately destined for destruction. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah were definitely sitting ducks. They were secure and satisfied and settled, but on a sinking ship. Abraham, however, was more like a migratory bird, living in tents and still waiting for his entry into the promised land. I think you'd have to say that Lot and his uh, wife and his whole family were, were somewhere in between those two things. They had a foot in both camps. They wanted to have it both ways. And so the title this morning that I've thought of from Lot's wife is Don't Look Back. Flee for your life. And we're going to look at the passage in four sections. There's four things that I want you to see. The first thing I want you to see is the danger of drifting. That's in the first section. The next thing I want you to see through Lot is the stupidity of staying. After that, the grace of God. 
And then finally, we're going to see the power of prayer. So I hope you'll keep it open in front of you, Genesis chapter 19. And the first thing that we're going to look at is the danger of drifting. We were introduced to Lot in chapter 11, and he really got himself off to a good start in chapter 12. Remember 12, 1 to 3, those really important verses of uh, a place and protection and a people and a program that God made to Abraham, or Abraham as he was known then. And then in verse 4, it says, Abraham went to the promised land as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. He was a migratory bird. He was passing through. He started off well. And he went with the good guy, the guy that God had promised to bless and through whom all blessing would flow. He was with Uncle Abraham. He started off well in chapter 12, verse 4. But then he drifts a little. Chapter 13, verse 12. Remember that um, Abraham and Lot were disputing, their herdsmen were disputing because there wasn't enough space for their flocks and so they needed to pick Land, And it says that uh, at that point, chapter 13, verse 12, that uh, Lot moved his tent as far as Sodom. That's chapter 13, verse 12. So he drifts to, away from the promised land, away from Uncle Abraham, as far as Sodom. Then in chapter 14, verse 12, the next chapter, it says, now he's dwelling in Sodom, chapter 14, verse 12. And then finally, the start of chapter 19, verse 1 today... He's sitting in the gateway of Sodom. Now, we just think that that's just sitting in the gateway, fine, but what that actually means in the Old Testament ancient Near East culture is that he was on the city council. The gateway was where they did business, where the councillors, the mayor, got together to do business. So now he's settled there, he's sitting in the gateway, he's a respected person in Sodom. Now, the writer had given us a a hint back in chapter 13 uh, as the narrator that that a bit of a foreshadowing that that he was making quite a big mistake. In chapter 13, verse 10, he says he moved um, as far as Sodom, and this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And then in chapter um, 13, verse 13, it says, Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So the reader gives us a hint in chapter 13 that he might be making a mistake. But then it's abundantly clear, should have been, to to, um, Lot in chapter 14, because the story of chapter 14 is where Lot and these invading armies come, because Sodom is at war, and these kings come, and they capture um, a Lot, and they carry him off into exile, and um, Abraham has to come and rescue him, and he rescues him from his captors. And you would think that if the place that you were living in was so uh, war-torn and so dangerous that you were captured and carried away by warring another tribe and carried off into exile, that once you were saved from Abraham, that you might think twice about moving back into that same neighbourhood. I mean, wouldn't you do that if, if you were captured by enemies and carried off? You might think twice about that as a safe neighbourhood to live in. And yet, what did Lot do? He was still there in chapter 19. There was obviously something about Sodom that he really wanted, that he was willing to risk being captured and carried away. There, There was obviously something that he felt like he needed and that he couldn't live without. He was willing to take the risk. 
Dale Ralph Davis, uh, in his commentary, says that over, as you look back over the course of the narrative, the story of Lot so far, you can count Lot's losses in the story today. Firstly, he lost his moral discernment and backbone. In verses 7 and 8, he offers up his daughters to be gang-raped by the men of Sodom. Just a slight lack of moral discernment and backbone. I told you it was R-rated. He lost the cogency of his witness because when he pleads with his sons-in-laws, you've got to run, you've got to flee, it's going to be a disaster. What do they do? They laugh. They think he's joking. He's lost the cogency of his witness. Thirdly, he lost a healthy sense of the fear of the Lord because in verse 16, if you look at verse 16, it says, but he lingered. After all that's happened, but he lingered. He's lost the sense of the fear of the Lord. We see later in the story that he lost his family. What happened to his wife? She was incinerated, turned into a pillar of salt. And then his daughters, if you read on, chapter, um, verse 30, and then the passage, end up committing incest with himself. He lost his family. And then finally, he lost his house and all of his possessions. If you look at verse 30, where's he living? He's living in a cave. Those are Lot's losses for living where he chose to live. Uh, they say, though, that hindsight is twenty twenty. Uh, how did Lot get himself into that situation in the first place? Why did he settle in Sodom? Well, perhaps it was for life in the fast lane, or it was a good career choice. Remember, he was a local on the council, after all, a, a, a member of the local council, after all. No doubt such a position came with quite a degree of status and uh, significance. You know, good, good connections, respect. Maybe he lived there for the sense of security. You can remember how this land was well watered, right, for his flocks. So he was a wonderful opportunity to grow his wealth and expand his wealth with many more flocks. Maybe he was there for the security. Ultimately, Lot was walking by sight and not by faith in the promises of God. But it's interesting because the Apostle Peter writes about Lot in 2 Peter chapter. 2 verses 7 and 8. Let me read it for you. He says, Righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as the righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. He was tormenting his righteous soul and yet he was happy to live there. And to stay. You see, Lot was a believer like you and me, according to the Apostle Paul. He was a righteous, he was one of us, if you like, and yet he never fully, so he never fully identified with the world around him, and yet he was unwilling to walk away. You might say he was addicted. And that leads us 
to the next thing I want you to see, which is the stupidity of staying. Even after Lot had been carried away into exile and captured, even after the men of Sodom had threatened to gang rape his his guests, after the angels, um, after that point, had urged him again and again to flee and to escape, the language for flee and escape occurs six times in verses 17 to 22. Even after all of this, look at verse 18. He says, Oh no, my lords, your servant has found favor with you. And... You have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but can I, I cannot flee to the hills for fear the disaster will overtake me and I die. Look, that city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. You see, what's so astonishing about Lot is that he begins his speech by acknowledging the favour that he's found in God's eyes and in verse 19 that God has saved his life. But then he goes on to say that he doubts God's ability to save him if he runs to the hills, which is exactly the place that God told him to run in order to be safe. Then... He has the temerity to ask if he could live in one of these neighbourhoods called Zoar, which means small, which was on the list of destruction that God was planning to destroy because it was just like Sodom. It was a mini Sodom. Not even fire and brimstone will make a pilgrim of Lot. He must have his little Sodom again if life is to be tolerable. Lord, I realise it's wicked. I realise it's destined to destruction. I realise that I've basically almost lost everything by living here, but can't I just have a little bit? Isn't it just a tiny little bit? It's the stupidity of staying. Even after the problem is his... Prosperity has been dissolved, even after his idols have been completely wrecked and are giving him no satisfaction, even like the prodigal son, after he had now had nothing and there's nothing standing in the way of him running back home into the arms of the father, even after all of that, what does he want? He wants to stay. He begs to stay. Again and again. Now, by this stage in the story, you, you might be thinking, uh, "Okay, Lord, just smoke him, along with the rest of the people." I mean, that simpering, whimpering, weaseling man. But that's where we see the grace of God you to see the grace of God. Because how do the angels respond to that request in verse 21? I mean, the temerity. The angel said to him, very well, I grant you this favour too, and will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. He grants him his request. And They delay their entire timetable of destruction just so that Lot and his family are able to escape. Can you see the amazing grace of God?
it's tending to be hard on Lot, isn't it? And to, and to think that we're nothing like him. But are we really? Are, are we really any less compromised in the way that we chase after the world? Are we really any less influenced by the wickedness that we see around us? Am I any less tempted by the sexual depravity and adultery in the world that I live in? Am I any less invested in keeping just a little tiny corner of my heart for my sins and my idols so that my life can be tolerable? Am I any really that much different to Lot? And yet God has been so merciful to me again and again and again, despite myself, Verse 16 says, But Lot lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out. Friends, make no mistake that salvation is not by human righteousness or human works, but by the mercy and grace of God to people who are hell-bent on living in the kingdom of darkness. He sent his son to take hold of us and to rescue us out of that kingdom and to bring us into the kingdom of the son he loves. Though day after day, we're hell-bent on destruction. Can you see the grace of God? Paul says it's not by works, but by grace, so that no one can boast. And that leads us to the final point, which is the power of prayer. The writer sees fit to conclude this part of the story by emphasizing the power of of prayer, just as Jesus said he prayed for si- he would pray for Simon Peter on the night he was betrayed. Chapter twenty-two, verse thirty-one of Luke, Jesus said, "Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail." And the good news is that God will not allow Jesus's prayers to fail. God always answers his prayers. And he prayed for Peter that his faith would not fail. And that is how his faith stayed. And nothing else. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and his prayer for Peter. And we see the same thing in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah. Because who was praying for them? Abraham, God's man, God's chosen man, was interceding for the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so... Early in the morning, it says, verse 27, Abraham went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. This was the place where he stood praying for the salvation of the city of Sodom. Now, God didn't answer him in the detail of his prayer, but he answered the substance of Abraham's prayer. Verse 29, this is the thing that the author wants you to see. God remembered Abraham... And sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. Do you see how Lot was saved? The author is trying to show you in verse 29. By the grace of God and by the prayers of Abraham. Abraham interceded for him. 
And so he was saved. God remembered him. This happened. The writer wants you to see that chapter 19 and Lot's rescue happened by the grace of God and in answer to Abraham's prayer in chapter 18. Because here's how verse 16 would have gone if Abraham wasn't interceding, if Abraham wasn't praying. It would have said, but Lot lingered, verse 16, and so he was destroyed. But in answer to Abraham's prayer, God actually sends his angels in answer to prayer. And when they couldn't persuade him verbally, they forced him physically. This is all in answer to Abraham's prayer. And they seized them and they carried them out by grace, against his will, in answer to Abraham's prayer. Do you see the power of prayer in the story? We can be confident that this is not made up or this is not irrelevant when we listen to the words of the Lord Jesus in Luke chapter 17 verse 28 where he says, Just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day that Lot left Sodom, it rained fire and sulfur from heaven and destroyed all of them. And this is what the Lord Jesus Christ says. It will be like that on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. He's saying that this story, Genesis 19, is a picture of what it will be like when the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, comes back to judge the living and the dead. These are the words of the Lord Jesus. Matthew 10, verse 15, he says, Truly I tell you, he only says that when he really wants you to Listen and mark his words. It will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for the town that rejects me. It will be more tolerable for them than for the town that rejects Jesus because Jesus is the fullness of God's grace and revelation and mercy. And so just as the Lord provided a narrow way of escape for Lot if he would up everything and flee to the hills in order to be saved and avoid the coming judgment. So the Lord Jesus Christ has provided a narrow way for us if we up and leave and flee to the hill of Mount Calvary where he was crucified and to take shelter in him. Tim Keller tells the story of a park ranger after a wildfire had torn through the Yellowstone National Park. Uh, This ranger found uh, a bird of which nothing was left but the carbonised, petrified shell covered in ashes, huddled in the base of a tree. He was obviously somewhat sickened by this sight, but he walked over and he knocked the bird over with his stick. And when he did, three tiny chicks scurried out from underneath. The mother had remained steadfast and not running away because she had been willing to die. The three tiny chicks were saved. And Jesus says in Luke chapter 13, verse 34, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. 
do you see? On Mount Calvary, Jesus bore the cosmic fire of God's wrath against our sins, the punishment for our sins, so that all who run to him and take cover underneath his wings will be rescued and saved. It's the narrow way. It's the only way. It was the only way. Suppose I saw a huge truck hurtling out of control toward you, about to crush you under its wheels. And if out of friendship for you, I threw myself in front of the truck uh, to save your life, you would be incredibly grateful. But suppose we were walking along and you were in absolutely no danger whatsoever and to demonstrate my love for you, I threw myself out in front of a hurdling truck and died. You would think I was crazy, mentally unstable. You see, only if there is no other way of preserving life is a sacrificial death heroic. Otherwise, it's just a completely foolish and senseless waste. And so it is with the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. If there was any other way for us to be saved and brought into his love than the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, then his death is utterly meaningless, senseless and crazy. Remember what Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane? My Father, if it were possible, let this cup pass from me. And was it possible to let this cup pass from him? The cup of God's judgment, drinking it down to the last dregs? The answer was, it's not possible. There's no other way than for you to go to the cross. So that if people run to you for shelter underneath his wings, they will be saved. There was no other way. And so friends, as we reflect on this story, I want you to think about which characters in the story are you more like? Are you like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, comfortably set in your sins, oblivious to the ticking time bomb of God's imminent judgment? Are you like his sons-in-law who laugh at the prospect of the coming Lord Jesus coming to judge the living and the dead? I think it's just a joke. Are you like Lot's wife looking back, ultimately unable to give up the world for God? Or perhaps you're like Lot, believing in God, righteous and yet hopelessly compromised in the way that you're chasing after the things of the world. Or friends, are you like Abraham, who's trusting and waiting for God to bring him into the promised land, in a place of trial and trouble and tribulation, praying earnestly that your family and your friends would run to take cover under the wings of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they may be saved along with you.
couldn't help but think the words of song by Colin Buchanan, the kids. It says, passing through, passing through on the way to heaven. Don't let this world get its grip on you. God's children are only passing through. Let's pray.